And the problem is, is he only has control over one of the sticks, right? So it would be, you know, it'd be like you guys showing up at, at, a, at a fire and you've got, you know, you guys have control of the end of the hose, but you don't have control of the, of the friggin' water, right? So like, it, it's all you're gonna have is a really, ex, you know, a really expensive for the building owner light and sound show. You're not gonna actually be fighting a fire. That's firefighting, um, anyways, Luke. You just uncovered. <laughs> <laughs> you just uncovered. Oh fuck, dude. Josh, uh, we we have, we're gonna have to cut this part, Dan. We can't let that. Go. <laughs> <laughs> He's on to us, dude. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. We are pumped to bring you this episode today. We spoke to none other than Luke Groman. Luke is one of the most trusted names in global macroeconomic research. Luke founded Forest for the Trees, or FFTT, in 2014. FFTT caters to institutions and sophisticated individuals by aggregating a wide variety of macroeconomic, thematic, and sector trends in an unconventional manner to identify investable developing economic bottlenecks for his clients. What does this mean? It means Luke sees into the future, at least as well as anyone we have ever heard of. Luke has been at the forefront of analysis for years, and he has been a guest on many high-profile shows explaining his view of the investable world. In this discussion, we talk primarily about energy and how it is the building block for the rest of the economy. Unfortunately, the Fed cannot print energy, and that may be a problem. There is a confrontation brewing in the macroeconomic world, and it's between politics and physics. There is a hard limit for politics, and that's where reality rears its head. If there is a resource shortage, monetary manipulation cannot fix it. As Luke says, we need a Manhattan Project for energy, and we need it as soon as possible. We also probe Luke about his opinion of Bitcoin and the likelihood of it being the solution to some of these problems. Luke may not be a Bitcoin mega bull but he sees Bitcoin as a very valuable hedge in a fiat storm. Before we move on, quick shout out to two new sponsors we have for the show. One being Capital Logistics and the other Crowd Health. Thank you both. Blue Collar Bitcoin is sponsored by CoinKite, creator of the cold card Mark IV. The Mark IV is the newest cold card model and brings some incredible new features to the table. We advise you get your Bitcoin off exchanges as soon as possible and as soon as you're comfortable taking ownership yourself. The cold card is the perfect signing device. You can use it in its most rudimentary and simple form, and this is easy for any beginner. You also have the ability to use it as an intermediate or more advanced user. The cold card runs the gamut of truly simple to ultimate complexity, offering everyone the simple solution for cold storage. The Mark IV also has NFC, or Near Field Communication, for convenient signing of air gap transactions between your phone or computer without having to pass an SD card between devices. The Mark IV also has trick pins you can set up to brick the device in case someone tries to unlock it, or you decide to destroy it under duress. CoinKite has truly thought of everything with this device, and we highly recommend you use one for your Bitcoin stack. Use code BCB for 5% off 
any new cold card. And now relax and enjoy our interview with Mr. Luke Groman. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Well, Josh, um, I'm not sure if what we're running here is a a podcast or just a well-orchestrated scam, but... (laughs) <laughs> Somehow we've conned Luke Roman into spending an hour with a couple of degenerate firemen this morning. Luke, welcome on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. <laughs> um, I'm excited and happy to be here. So thanks for having me on. Yeah, um, Dan and I are concerned about the invoice because when we receive it, this whole this whole uh, this whole thing's going to collapse under that. It's <laughs> 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 a good good run while we had it. Yeah. Um, how, how's your morning, Luke? What, what have you been up to? What is a what is a morning in the life of Luke Roman look like? Uh, uh, it varies. Um, I mean, it generally follows some version of um, a weekly flow. So we publish a report uh, Wednesdays and every Friday. And so Mondays, um, I tend to do um, wake up, do a bunch of reading. Uh, if I do a podcast, it's usually sometime early in the week, a Monday or a Tuesday. Um, usually by Tuesday afternoons, I'm in the the, the writing cave writing. Uh, I pretty much am reading incessantly. Um, white papers, Twitter, you know, mainstream media, alternative, just anything I can get my hands on. I don't know what I'm looking for, but I'm just trying. I've equated myself to being a, a big catfish down at the bottom of the Ohio River. I'm just sort of laying there and, and letting <laughs> letting stuff drift downstream. And if it looks interesting to me, I'll, I'll ingest it and kind of set it to the side, the things I find interesting, organize my thoughts. So then Tuesday, Wednesday is usually about writing. Thursday, um, uh, afternoons and Fridays are usually also about writing, but it, it was inter, interspersed with all of that. I've got client interactions. I've got travel. I've got baseball games. I've got taking my youngest kid to high school now that school seasons, uh, uh, school, school year started again. So it's, it's, there's a general outline to it, but one of the things that I love about what I do, and, and there's a lot of them is, is, is the flexibility, uh, that it affords. Luke, you are known as or to be one of the greatest macro thinkers out there, in our opinion. And this is going to be a big question right off the bat, but it's I mean, it's completely relevant. And this is what people want to hear. What is so scary about this? Two questions, actually. What is so scary about this macro setup the way we have it in the world right now with the geopolitical tensions going on? And what period of time in the past, in your opinion, is this most similar to? Um. The reason it is so scary to me is the combination of of things that have either never happened before, have happened before and have worked out badly, but they are far bigger in terms of the magnitude of the problem now versus in times when history has rhymed. Uh, And then the physical world nature of a lot of these problems, mm-hmm. and, and by that I mean in particular peak cheap energy and, and some of the energy constraints uh, we are running into at the moment, where 
these can't be papered over. You know, when you right. flick on the switch in Europe, either the electricity comes on or it doesn't, and there's nothing a central bank can do. And if anything, they can make it worse by printing money into an economy that is short energy. So you have this unique combination of uh, peak cheap energy where uh, we are trying to do this energy transition. And I've heard people say, well, you know, the Stone Age didn't end for lack of stones. And, and of course it didn't. It ended because the Bronze Age came and bronze was better than stone. And the people with stone swords got killed by all the people with bronze swords and, and so on. Coal overtook wood and oil overtook coal. And here we are for the first time that I'm aware of in human history as a global planet uh, trying to make an energy transition from uh, a, a, an energy source that is superior to inferior um, in terms of its energy return on invested energy, in terms of its portability, etc. A lot of different sort of physics factors. But yeah. the point is, is that we're trying to do this, and this would be difficult enough. Individual little civilizations on an island here or an island there, uh, when they've tried to do it, uh, they've generally gone extinct. So that gives you an idea. Now, we're trying to do this worldwide, so that the stakes could not be higher. Mm -hmm. uh, complicating this is that you have um, these debt levels globally uh, where arguably we started hitting some of these uh, physical world thresholds 50 years ago. Uh, you can go back and read some of the limits to growth books and some of these things and people say, well, the growth we've had since proves that that was, um, that that was just Malthusian bunk. And on some level, yes, because we have made massive productivity increases, etc. But they also, those, those people calling that, that complete bunk, tend to leave out the fact that a lot of what we have done is basically pulled forward future demand by growing debt massively. Right. And so it's this interplay of this energy transition that, um, that is going to be difficult to do under the best of circumstances with the debt, which complicates it. And now when you layer the geopolitical on it, where really what we need is cooperation and what we're getting is conflict, yeah. uh, it just sets up for a very toxic brew from a macro perspective. Could I just interject here for one second? I want to make sure I understand and, and maybe everyone listening does. The transition in energy what you're, that you're speaking of. So we've we've gone from less dense, dense energy sources throughout history to more dense, more productive energy sources. And what you're saying is, is that this this may be like solar wind energy source um, option that we have in front of us is obviously less dense, less useful, and it, it has downtime. So it, we're actually moving to an inferior source of energy in a lot of ways. And that has cascading effects through the economy because there's simply, it simply isn't as, um, it, you can't depend on it as well. And it's less energy yeah. dense. Okay. Density is a great way of framing it, right? And, and ultimately, uh, you've seen me probably say on Twitter before and in interviews that energy is the master resource, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're watching this real time in Europe, which is, I think, I think Zoltan Pozar said the other day that, that $2 trillion in German value added is dependent on $20 billion in Russian gas. And so if you really, that $20 billion in Russian gas in that example, is just nature's discount rate, right? The Fed can say, hey, we're gonna lower rates or the ECB can lower it. Nature doesn't give a shit. Like, the, the 20, like <laughs> yeah. if the gas is going up in price, the discount rate of all assets 
uh, or excuse me, the discount rate on all assets is going up if the cost of energy goes up. And as that happens, the value of assets comes down. And the problem is, if we are an equity-based society, in other words, we didn't have all this debt, it was all equity-based, uh, it wouldn't be a big deal. People write down their equity and we move on. It is what it is. But the challenge is in a system that is a debt-backed system, debt-backed currency, is when you start writing down the value of assets, That's you're writing down the value of collateral against an extremely high debt load. You quickly right. get upside down. It has these broad-ranging macro implications that um, are, to put it mildly, problematic. Yeah. So it's funny, you brought up Zoltan before I did. We read his most recent piece, War and Interest Rates. We talked about it with this guy, Joe Brown, the other week. Um, in our view, like that was maybe the most impactful essay we've read in, in six months to a year. Not that we agree with everything in it, but it, it does rhyme a lot with your thinking, your writing. Like I immediately thought of Mr. X interviews when I was, when I was reading Zoltan's most recent piece. There's sort of three things at play, and I think it's worth I think he's for ripping audience. you off. Yeah, he's, yeah. <laughs> plagiarism. I doubt it. Yeah. Uh, he, uh, he's brilliant. I think it's worth kind of going through all three or at least a couple of these, and you just identified them again. You've got things, this confluence of really significant factors right now in the 2020s, an energy issue, huge exorbitant debt loads that have virtually no feasible escape without pain, and then conflict, right? Let's let's go back to the energy piece in whatever fashion you you feel is most helpful. Explain what is so dire about this? How significant do you think it is? What's going on in Europe for someone that's maybe less clued into the dynamics right now on the energy crisis over there? So I'm trying to think of the best way to frame this. I mean, to me it's interesting you hear well fiat currency is all about confidence. As long as there's confidence in the fiat currency, then the system works. And we've heard that our whole lives, and it's right. But they never get into they, the the, the ephemeral they, right? Mm -hmm. They policymakers, our professors, economists, politicians, they never get into what underpins that confidence. And the answer to what underpins that confidence is when you turn on the lights, the light comes on. When you go to the gas station and you hand them those dollar bills and you squeeze the pump, there's gas in the pump. Uh, when you turn on the heat, the heat comes on. And when you start to disconnect the, it doesn't have to be all the time it doesn't work, just part of the time it doesn't work. When they say changing the mindset around inflation, this is ultimately what changing the mindset around inflation is. It's a change in perception about the risk, the, the, the consistency with which the paper fiat currency world can be exchanged for the real things that we need. And whether that's oil, gas, electricity, uh, food at, at, at the, uh, you know, when you get real extreme examples down in Venezuela or whatever, where the shelves are empty, etc. It breeds this mindset of as soon as you get some money, you immediately put some of it into something other than money right. because you don't trust the uh, you don't trust the supply chain uh, of modern uh, of modern economies and what we're watching in real time in Europe as a result of a combination of uh, long term diplomatic decisions uh, by the European Union vis-a-vis -vis Russian dependence on Russian gas uh, more recently um, American uh, 
unwillingness to let the Europeans uh, have energy sovereignty around uh, mm. paying for energy in their own currency and settling in whatever they want to settle in. Uh, and then I think Russian intransigence around, um, I don't know, <laughs> on, on one hand, uh, there's some issues there. On another hand, nobody likes having missiles on their border. We showed right. that in the United States in 1962 with the Cuban Missile Crisis. So yeah. it's, there's, there, it, it's a complicated, not black and white, shades of gray, uh, but where it's not shades of gray is, is where is, is on the energy side in real time. We're all seeing these charts of, of European power costs uh, as a result of a restriction in gas flow uh, into Europe. Uh, and uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's not just problematic. I mean, it is, it is catastrophic. It will not take long where, I mean, I, somebody tagged me on Twitter today where it's, hey, we run a small business in the UK. We just got our updated energy power costs. They're up 5x. We can't afford it. We were already losing money. We're shutting down. We're laying everybody off. And that's yeah. what I mean about energy is the nature's discount rate. Take the discount rate up 5x, business goes, doesn't go down a little bit. Business doesn't drop 10% or 20%. Business drops 100%. Unemployment goes up nonlinearly with nonlinear increases in, the, in nature's discount rate. Absolutely. Um, this seems like, to me like a like two forces meeting each other. There's this political science, this soft science of politicians deciding by fiat what's going to happen. And they're very used to, especially in the US and Europe, to be able to make those proclamations and they, they can follow through and it works because we've had such abundance of energy and, and, and just uh, money in general. We just, we've just been this first world part of the world for so long that we're used to just getting our way. And then in direct confrontation to that is physics or a hard science which is mm. there's only so much energy there's only so many resources and now we've kind of met this rock and hard place where clearly physics and natural law is going to prevail over economics and political science because those are just constructs of our minds not really reality i i also think there's just a massive naivety on the implications of this system imploding like we see this a ton in the Bitcoin community, Luke. Like you have what we call like some three book econ experts. They've read like three books by Bitcoiners and all of a sudden they have this fundamental grasp of econ of the fiat system is inherently evil. Bitcoin's going to sweep in and there's going to be this great Bitcoin rapture. It makes me think of this interchange I saw with Bitcoin Tina. I don't know if you know who he is, but he was basically confronting this guy on Twitter yesterday saying like, you've benefited. Like, do you enjoy eating and sleeping indoors? Like these, num these aren't just numbers on spreadsheets. Like these ledgers, no matter how fragile they are, no matter how broken they are, they are how the world works. They are how resources move, how lights go on, how air conditioners fire up, how heating gets, you know, gets in, in your home. So yes, is the system broken and dysfunctional for sure. But to wish for its immediate implosion is also wildly naive. And um, I, that, I appreciate your tone on this too. Like, yes, it's an absolute shit show. But we have, we have to figure out tangible solutions that allow Homo sapien to continue to exist and thrive through whatever the transition is. Um, and it just feels like a lot's coming to a head right now with the energy implications now entering the fray. I mean, just, just looking right. at these bills, for example, that people are posting on Twitter that live in Europe, their natural gas bill is it's insane. hard to wrap your head around, especially for a couple of middle class dudes. When you're seeing a, 
a, a, a heating bill or an electricity bill that rivals your mortgage, uh, that's not sustainable for my family. I can tell you that much. And, and so the point I'm getting at is we shouldn't be rooting for destruction. Um, and I do think you're sound, obviously you're sounding some really significant alarm bells that have significant implications. If you're, if you're Jerome Powell, Luke, how would you approach this? Would this be, <laughs> yeah, would, would you, you take the same straight approach? straight out of my mouth. God <laughs> damn it. right through. <laughs> uh, you know what? You, were, you, you went long enough. It's enough. Yeah, I did. Cut me off. <laughs> Cut me off. How would you handle this if you were at the helm at the Fed? Like, what, what would be your playbook? If anything different from what's going on now? Because, fix I mean, it, it is in the it, end. Luke. It's, it's a confidence <laughs> game, right? <laughs> It's a confidence, it's a confidence game. game in the short run. And, and to you guys' point, in the intermediate term, it's a physics problem. Uh, and, you know, physics, physics don't care, right? <laughs> it's like, it's right. like honey badger. The fix is multi-pronged. And the problem is, is he only has control over one of the sticks, right? So it would be, you know... Yeah. You know, it'd be like you guys showing up at, at a, at a um, you know, at a, at a fire and you've got, you know, you guys have control of the end of the hose, but you don't have control of the, of the friggin' water. Right. So like, yeah. you know, it, it, it's, it, it's all you're going to have is a really, ex, you know, a really expensive for the building owner light and sound show. You're not going to actually be fighting a fire. That's firefighting um, anyways, Luke. You just uncovered. <laughs> oh, fuck, dude. Josh, oh, we we're going to have to cut this part, Dan. We can't let that go. <laughs> He's on to us, dude. Right. <laughs> a so you, really you expensive need... light show, Luke. We won't get into that. <laughs> You need a very whole of government approach. You need uh, sound energy, and, and you almost need where we are, Manhattan Project like urgency yeah. um, in terms of, of creating the nuclear bomb uh, fast. Uh, you, you need, um, you, basically, I think the answer is, is Jerome Powell, if I was him, my job, I would see it as um, financing U.S. industrial policy and the energy transition inflation be damned. Uh, we need 100 new nuke plants. Done. We need new uh, infrastructure, uh, electrical grid infrastructure. We need actually the steel mills and the ore and the mines to produce the stainless steel in sufficient quantities to build the electrical plants. And then once we build the electrical, the steel mills and the electrical plants, then we can actually build the infrastructure, Fed monetize, all of that. Basically, you, you put the Fed back to where they were in World War II, which was the Fed said, we'll buy every treasury that, the, that you offer U.S. government yeah. at, you know, uh, and cap rates. And the Fed's balance sheet rose 10x during World War II off a small base. That's... Uh, I was just going to say that that's what he can do. You're, uh, that's all he can your do. angle on that is entirely different from, I mean, most people that are in the space are just thinking financially all the time. And like, this is the way I would, you know, yeah. obviously we all understand the supply side of all of this is totally outside of the feds control. But I mean, what you just enumerated there makes a lot of sense because the underlying fundamental problem here, besides the fact that we've just printed money into an oblivion state is that we have a, a scarcity of resources, specifically energy and we need to get on top of that as fast as possible with, you know, and nuclear energy is clearly the cleanest and best source of energy that we've 
invented thus far. It is. It's, and it's fascinating to me, and it's, it's a little disheartening. I think it's very cynical, dogmatic. I, I can't decide what it's from when I hear guys like Larry Summers or guys like uh, Bill Dudley talking about needing to reduce demand to fix the inflation problem rather than investing in supply and just letting inflation run hot for a while. Um, I go back to the movie The Big Short. I presume you guys have seen the yeah, movie The Big Short, great right? Movie. And it's a great movie. And, you know, I go back to the scene where Brad Pitt's character, Ben Rickert, goes, do you guys understand what just happened? Do you, what you just did? You're betting against the American economy. Here's a number for you. Every 1% that unemployment goes up, 40,000 people die. You know, just stop fucking dancing. Mm -hmm. And I basically what Larry Summers and what Bill Dudley are recommending that Powell do when he's listening is to take unemployment up 2%, 3%. It, that's not going to stop the inflation. They need to take unemployment up 4%, 5%. So let's, let, they're at, they are basically recommending killing two, 200, 300,000 people to get inflation down so that the real value of their bond portfolio can be maintained um, at a time of record wealth and income inequality anyway. I mean, it is so distasteful to me. Um, and yeah. away from distasteful, because that's a political question, it's so the wrong thing for the United States economy, the United States government, the United States people, that these policymakers are allegedly acting in the interest of, uh, that it, it, I find myself very frustrated. It, it, the answer is, is, listen, if you didn't want inflation, you shouldn't have done all this stupid stuff. Because the inflation is just the market marking to market all the stupid stuff, you know instead of building new bridges and new infrastructure and new this, like we, we, we deployed a whole bunch of steel and we put them into athletic stadiums like the last days of Rome. Yeah. You know, what if all that steel and all these billion dollar stadiums that, you know, they go down to high school football stadiums these days. Like, I mean, when we were playing football growing up, like it was like you had one Jersey and like the wood stands were wood and, and the, the fields were all grass. Like, and that's fine. Like, I don't, I don't want to take anything away from these stadiums, but they're sort of way down on Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Agreed. If you're not addressing your infrastructure, your energy, your power. And so you, and then we can get into economic policy. We can get into the wisdom of offshoring the U.S industrial base to China. We can get into the wisdom of what we did in the Middle East and all these things, which were bad ideas, very expensive, put us behind the eight ball. Like the inflation we're seeing at its core is just the marking to market to all of those bad decisions. In the same way that the inflation of the 70s, the U.S. having to go off the gold standard was a marking to market of the bad decision, primarily of going into Vietnam in the way we did. Mm -hmm. So for me, it's very... Um, it's disheartening. They really need to, they, 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 what they should be doing and what they are doing are literally opposite sides. And what that tells me is, okay, like the beatings are going to continue until morale improves or until <laughs> people go, that's, that's it, right? Like we, we need to print the money to, to, to invest in these shortages. The only way to stop the inflation is to let the inflation run hot, invest. And that will, that's the market's giving you a signal. Hey, prices are going up. It doesn't tell you to run unemployment up 5%. It tells you to go build some damn electricity plants. Yeah. As you say this, I don't know if this is going to resonate with either of you, but it's almost like if, you were to, if we were to employ that tactic, we need to do it before the rest of the world really catches on. Because we're kind of thinking through this under the paradigm of USD is the world's reserve currency. Like I actually have a quote written down here from Mr. X and it, it stood out to me. What really gives us leverage is the position of the dollar as base currency. 
In the last financial crisis, we escaped largely by printing money. Other countries can't get away with that without causing massive inflation. So if you're basically sitting in Beijing, they've been catching on to this. You know, you'd think globally, right? They're denominating energy in something other than U.S. dollars. They're not net buyers of U.S. treasuries. And if we kind of lose this exorbitant privilege, although it has many disadvantages and you enumerate those well for the middle class, it does enable us to take on massive leverage without full consequence, you could say. I guess this parlays into my next question. Like, could this be the real massive fly in the ointment? Like, especially when we layer on uh, everything that the U.S. is obligated to spend on, entitlements, defense spending, just interest payments alone, right? When you add the debt situation and the fraying of global confidence in the USD as world reserve currency, this is where the, I guess the catch-22 really meets. Fill in anything else you want there, Luke, about how that complicates the dynamic of the U.S. sort of spin moving out of this situation. Yeah, so there's, I, I think the, there's fraying confidence in the dollar for various reasons. Um, I think the fundamental reason for it is this uh, recognition that the amount of dollars we will have to print to satisfy our debt and off-balance sheet obligations does not match the fundamental value of energy today. Mm. That if those two matched, energy prices should be way higher. And I think ultimately, this is why Russia 14 years ago said, we're done. We're going to start buying gold. Uh, because I think they looked and said, we have a finite amount of oil. Or, you know, our, Sooner or later, our, our oil fields are going to peak, roll over. And if we only sell that for dollars or dollar paper, dollar denominated assets, we're going to wake up. As soon as Russian oil rolls over in terms of production, global oil prices are going to shoot up and the global economy is going to come unhinged. And that was speculative up until about six months ago. That's no longer speculative. We now know empirically that if you start reducing Russian oil supplies, inflation is going to take off, oil prices are going to spike, and the global economy is going to implode because we're watching it happen real time in Europe. So there's this, and I think the Chinese, as a a more uh, centralized authoritarian government, has a little bit more flexibility. And I'm not saying it's a good or bad thing. I like our system better. With that said, one of the advantages they can look at this and not have to deal with, you know, not in my backyard and greens and and all this stuff that that the Europeans and the Americans have to deal with from a political standpoint. And they can go, oh my God, the Americans have to print a hundred trillion dollars and oil's only priced in dollars and we're short oil. And when the Americans print a hundred trillion dollars, our energy bill is going to go through the roof. We're going to run deficits and our economy is going to collapse and we're going to be hung by our people. That's that's the only thing they've been focused on for 15 years right. since the great financial crisis. Yeah. So you can see this move to gain the ability to price energy and other critical commodities in Chinese yuan. They are getting very far along on that process. The Europeans have been working at this for 50 years. You can go back to the the state uh, declassified State Department documents uh, in which Henry Kissinger, before I was born, 1973 or 74 talking about how the European community at that point, wasn't even the EU, it was the EC, uh, how they were setting up a system, the French and the Germans and, and the Dutch, um, for settling, uh, for paying Arab oil exporters in their currencies and settling the deficits in gold at a floating price uh, instead of dollars. And so this this has been this whole 
get away from the dollar thing, people say, well, it's going to take decades. Well, yeah, it's been at yeah. least five of them already. Um, and the Americans have done a very uh, brutish uh, uh, job of, of part, you know, basically staving all of these off. And so, yes, there is a movement away from the dollar on some level. I think it ultimately is being driven by varying levels of fundamental enlightened self-interest by each of these countries, whether they be oil exporters in the case of Russia, uh, or they be creditors to the U.S. that also import oil like the European Union, like China, um, like Japan, like India. I, and we're seeing these headlines come by real time. People starting to, that, that's, there's two ways out from this, three ways out really. It's we all work together um, or we work separately. Someone comes up with some sort of a productivity enhancing um, energy technology or it's a Manhattan project like the nuclear fusion, massive rollout of fission, portable nuclear, uh, you know, uh, assault bed reactors that you, you've heard people talk about um, that may actually be further along than people think. Okay, great. That that can get us there. That's still bumpy, but that that's okay. Uh, some sort of widespread economic collapse or conflict, not good. Or you get a jailbreak or a, a, a murder on the Orient Express outcome for this the status quo dollar system where Japan goes out and said, listen, it, it, it comes down to our people and the dollar and we have to approach Russia and say, we will pay in yen and you take the yen Russia and then you buy J uh, Japanese goods and anything net back or forth with each other, we will settle in gold at a floating rate. And the Indians already look like they're doing that. And the Turks have already started to talk about that. And the Europeans, um, I think, are conflicted. I think half the Europeans are with the Americans. And I think half the Europeans are, want, have wanted to do this, this energy and euro thing forever, which is, I think, why they did Nord Stream 2 and Nord Stream 1 and sort of got into bed with Russians in the first place. So there's, there's all these things happening. But on the status quo, if nobody moves, like we're on a plane that is on a glide path at a pretty steep angle downward toward the ground at a pretty high rate of speed, unfortunately, economically speaking. I was going to say, <clears throat> it's almost like when you look at the energy dynamics and, you know, dollar being the network effect currency of energy trade, which we've established is increasingly less the case, but is still largely the headliner. It's almost like these other players are realizing they're the elephant and the U.S. is the handler. Like, you guys ever at the zoo where it's like, this elephant could just fucking crush this guy right here, but it doesn't know any better, right? And, it, and, it, and as you think about how big of an importer of oil uh, China is, how massive Russian oil production is, which we've gotten a front row seat to, as you said more recently, how systemically important they are, um, it's like... It, this has been going on, and you, you talk about this a lot, but people are waking up internationally to the implications of them being prodded along by the handler when they're 10 times yeah. his size. You know what I mean? And it's absolutely something that needs to be squarely on the United States radar and in, large, in, in many ways has been, but has to be kind of kept hush-hush. I get the feeling, and Luke, let me know what you think about this, and I think it's fairly obvious at this point, though, that Powell is focus solely on the dollar at this point like he wants to rein in inflation so that he can slow down the bleeding at least and it seems like he's willing to throw almost anything under the bus for it including jobs the economy he's going to raise interest rates to the point where very likely we have an economic problem instead of a dollar problem and we kind of have to pick one or the other do you have any feeling or idea where you think interest rates could possibly go with this before maybe they change 
and turn tail and go the other direction again? I think it is all around the treasury market. Uh, I think they will raise rates and break stuff until the treasury market uh, breaks. Uh, and, and you can see ahead of time, the symptoms of breaking are, the immediate symptom is when you get risk down, you know, stocks down big, and TLT down big, right? The 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 ETF of of so the long bond in the U.S. tanking with uh, yield, you know, yields up, price down with stocks. That's your closest symptom. I would say the leading symptom to that, or a leading symptom to that, is watching tax receipts. Um, and that's something people just aren't paying enough attention to, in my view, which is. Yeah, we had a bubble in real estate. Yeah, we had a bubble in crypto. Yeah, we had a bubble in in tech. We had all these bubbles, and everyone's like, "Oh, we got to do something about these bubbles." And none of those same people, other than maybe me and a couple other people, are going. Did you guys see how much of a tax receipt bubble all those asset bubbles drove? <laughs> because we can barely, we're barely covering uh, treasury spending and entitlement paygoes right. with this epic bubble in tax receipts that was driven by an epic bubble in everything. And now the, the Fed's pricking the everything bubble. And you know we have a chart that shows uh, that we've shown our clients a number of times. If you just look at the year-over-year change in stock prices against the year-over-year change in U.S. tax receipts, like post-95, there was, a, there was a, a tax change that Bill Clinton signed and put in place that increased the incentive to make stock-based comp much more prevalent than, than cash-based comp for execs. Uh, and ever since then, it's been an increasingly tight correlation between whatever the stock market does, that's what U.S. tax receipts do. And so now we know what stocks have done. We know what housing is doing, which also is po- very positively correlated uh, on a lag to tax receipts. And so you're st- last week, Thursday or Friday, California tax receipts in July come in 12% below expe- expectations. Um, you know, stocks, houses. Um, you know, New York City uh, estimated tax payments. Uh, down 31% year over year in July, or excuse me, in June, right? I mean, you guys work, you know, doing what you do in in municipality. Like, it doesn't take too many and money months at down 30% in a municipality where that's not good. Yeah, it's not good. So that's, those are your leading indicators, right? And there's some, I think, some things where people are leaving California and New York for a number of reasons, in part because the tax basis, the burdens are so high. Right. Uh, But at the end of the day, federally, the marginal drive, big, uh, biggest, a huge marginal driver to consumption is tax price or tax prices, stock prices. Huge marginal to GDP is consumption. Yeah, and so we can see these things. It's very predictable. And so, okay, stock prices down, tax receipts down, stocks down, treasury market down at the same time. Ultimately, the Fed has three mandates. They've always had three mandates. It's stable, you know, low, un- low, low unemployment, stable prices, uh, and and financing the government, making sure the U.S. government's borrowing rate was was um, can borrow at, ex- at politically expedient rates. And they sort of never had to worry about that. Well, that's the whole point of a central bank. Uh, when push comes to shove, it's just for all of our time on this planet, it really hasn't come to shove. Not since eighty one or eighty two. Uh, now it's push is coming to shove again. Um, and the Fed told us in 2020, April 2020, Powell said, you know, used the phrase treasury market functioning, treasury market dysfunction. We need to make sure markets are functioning, treasury markets functioning. We, we was asked, why are you still buying mortgages? Home prices are rising at a 25% rate. He said in either 20 or 21, I forget which year, but the quote blew my mind because he was honest. He said the MBS market, the mortgage-backed market is a close relative to the treasury market. 
And so we have to keep it functioning. Yeah. There you go. So it, it's, that is when they're going to stop breaking stuff. And that's where things get interesting. Because I think things are going to break in the treasury market in some way, shape, or form well before inflation gets back to, at the CPI level, back to their 2% target. And now you're going to be running sort of a, an Argentina central bank playbook with American characteristics, which is he's going to have to grow his balance sheet again. He's going to have to cut rates. He's going to have to stimulate with Cpi still at four or five or six and it's just kind of yeah it's going to get interesting it, goes. it is what it is yeah i want to talk about bitcoin here but i want to ask you one more question on that topic before we do considering that tax receipts might be down considerably and interest rates are going up so now you're in the situation where they have to keep maintaining this large debt load under that duress how so we talked to joe brown about this a little bit and he had he had an idea that I hadn't thought of and I hadn't heard anyone speak about before, which is they might be able to change which you know bond they're issuing. Like instead of issuing the the short term three month one year treasury bill, we go for the ten year because there's a you know much lower interest rate to maintain on that. Do you think that they would make a transition like that before they would do something like yield curve control to try to kick this can a little bit longer? Do you have any? I know that's kind of a complex topic, but if if you've got some kind of brief answer for that or some idea that you've enumerated before, any, any ideas on that? The, the short answer is um, they can do it on the margin. The problem is, is the sizes that they need to do it at now are so great relative to the underlying liquidity of mm -hmm. the 10-year treasury market gotcha. or the 20-year treasury market, 30-year treasury market that There's the 10-year no is... There's not enough buyers for the size they need to do, and that's the policy rate, effectively, of your real economy, right? You show up and you start sending yields higher on that, you're going to break the housing market, and what you're going to find is your attempts to term out the debt actually increase the deficit, not lower the deficit. And you, you and that's the problem when you get debt so high is you just it's like a person like yeah. you get your debt so high you have less and less and less flexibility, and that's just the issue. So then, th beyond that would be yield curve control. They would have to at that point because some way shape or form yeah okay i mean the issue is if they get started they end up doing almost all of it you know what i mean when you you've <laughs> said that too like it's it's non-linear it's once they get going and people know they're getting ripped off well guess who's buying it all and mm -hmm. uh, that's where it's it gets it. real sticky yeah that's a hotel california <laughs> all right let's talk about bitcoin I, I, let's just let's throw it out to you at first what are your how would you characterize bitcoin right now interesting is it really important? How likely do you think it is to be really valuable and why? Give us just some high-level comments on Bitcoin and then we'll kind of prod from there. So I, I still think Bitcoin is effectively a neutral reserve asset for the people that is tied to energy via the proof of work dynamic uh, and the expenditure of energy, which I think is super important for people to hold a little bit of, at least, um, as a preserver of purchasing power in energy terms, uh, as really a hedge of currencies, effectively, right? It, it's what we're seeing, and I, and I think it's been a very good measure of dollar liquidity in that way, right? I mean, Bitcoin, and I kick myself about this, you know, I go back to last June, I I, I said to my to my clients, to subscribers, I said I sold most of my Bitcoin 
and I'm paying down a lot of my debt. And I want to say Bitcoin was like 48,000, something like that. And uh, it ended up being a fine trade. I started buying most of it back uh, too early, uh, starting in sort of 4Q into 1Q. Uh, and I can't, reason I say I kick myself, I don't kick myself about that so much, buying it back. You know, I didn't trade it that well, obviously. But I'm, in, one, in, in January of this year, I showed a chart of the price of gold in Weimar German marks, German Reichs marks, We're right? familiar with and, that chart. Yeah, it's a great chart by my friend Dan Oliver uh, at Mermican Capital. And it shows that basically if you were levered long gold, even as the currency went to zero in gold terms effectively, went to a trillion dollars per ounce of gold, you lost all your money four different times because of the volatility was just absolutely insane. And I actually put that in a report and I said, here's where we are right now for Bitcoin and gold and all this stuff. And it was at like one of the tops before it went down and then took off higher still. And sometimes you get so caught in like the writing or the thinking that you don't exactly recognize exactly how important what you just wrote till you look back at it a little bit later. And I should have just said, um, I'm, I'm, I'm buying dollars and I'm buying a little bit of gold and I'm buying oil and I'm going to the beach and I'll see you guys all in December because it would have been a lot less stressful year, but <laughs> um, a lot less interesting year as well. Yeah. Um, but, but my point here is, is that even in one of the great hyperinflations in history, and I don't think that's where this is going. I mean, it, it could, but I don't think that's where this is going. But even one of the great hyperinflations in history, there were multiple times where the populace said, oh, they're serious this time. They're going to raise rates. They're going to tamp out inflation. I need to sell gold and buy German Reichsmarks. And of course, in history, you look back and go, how stupid was that? How could they have been so stupid? The math is obvious. And it's, 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 it, 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 this whole thing, whether it's economics, life, raising kids, it's a lot harder in real time. It's easy to look back yep, and go, oh. For sure. Absolutely. Know. So to me, I think everyone should own a little bit of Bitcoin. And I think that varies on your own personal circumstances, understanding. All, it's a neutral reserve asset with an energy tie. And you can go and talk to people in emerging markets who, who will tell you, you know, this thing saved my life, you know, in, in, in these really extreme uh, uh, circumstances. So for me, I, you know, I own a bit. I like it. It's a neutral reserve asset. It is performing as a competing neutral reserve asset would do uh, at a time where people believe uh, they still believe the Fed's going to do it. They think they're going to stamp out inflation. Now, the math tells you they can't. And that's why I say, OK, do you, Luke, do you still like Bitcoin? Yes. Well, why? Because the math can't work. And Basically, unless we get sort of the miracle solution, which is increasingly looking like a Hail Mary, you know, a 99-yard Hail Mary, yeah. um, then this is going to have some sort of a messy outcome. And I want to hedge that. And it is, I think, part of a solution, a group-balanced solution uh, to hedging that. And I think that balanced solution includes dollars. I think it includes gold. I think it includes Bitcoin. I think it includes stocks. I think it includes some real estate. I think it includes a whole bunch of different things. But I, I think it's part of that solution. It has some unique properties that all of those others don't have. Absolutely. Yeah. One of the things that I think we would encourage people to recognize, as you just said, which is never leverage Bitcoin. If you've been doing it in the last six months, you learned a really hard lesson. Don't leverage it. This thing could go in any direction from here, including 50% less than the point it's at. So don't leverage Bitcoin is all I'm trying to say for everybody listening. 
because it will probably be very similar to that gold chart in Weimar, Germany. Yeah. Has so far. Luke, do you for, I mean, the market cap of Bitcoin is still, it's remarkable, but it's tiny. Um, do you envision a future where the market cap's much larger and energy settles in this? Or do you think that's far-fetched? What's your thought on that? I think it depends on, I think, I think it's possible. I think it's still far-fetched for the moment. Yeah. But I think it depends on events. Um, the longer this goes on, and what I mean by this is just take the last two, three months in energy as it relates to Japan, Germany, Russia, China, we're in a giant prisoner's dilemma, right? And so basically, the longer this goes on, and what I mean by this is the domestic populaces of all these places not being able to afford to turn the lights on, and uh, uh, the more likely it becomes daily that one of them breaks ranks. And the solution to the energy problem is very simple. <laughs> um, if I'm Europe, I call up Russia and I'm like, listen, we'll, we'll, we'll pay you in euros and to lower the price, we, will, we agree to uh, also attach, you know, instead of paying you, I don't know, whatever they're paying right now, uh, I'm just gonna make up a number. Um, instead of paying you 100 euro per barrel oil, we're going to pay you 20 euro per barrel oil plus five grams of gold physical delivered to you valued at 3,000 euro per ounce. Boom. Their energy bill collapses. Yeah. Their energy bill collapses. And people go, well, why would Russia take the deal at a discount? Oh, by the way, Russia's selling a discount as we speak. Why would Russia take the deal at a discount? What's, what did I say earlier that Russia's been buying the whole time? Gold. So now the 3,000, Russia will be valuing their gold reserves up to 3,000 euro per ounce by virtue of their oil that they're selling to the Europeans with the kicker. Okay. So this is the, this is the prisoner's dilemma where I think the U.S. in particular, certain EU policymakers are trying to keep everybody inside the tent pissing out. Right. Uh, but the energy side is, is, is putting domestic political pressure on European policymakers, Japanese policymakers, less so to the American policymakers because our energy inflation isn't as bad as these other places yet. Um, but uh, it might get there. We'll see. Um, Do you? Um, but this is, the, yeah, Bitcoin could be a, a, a solution to that. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I'm sorry to cut you off. What is the most likely way you see this developing in the longer term? Do you think we could see some kind of a bank or system? as Keynes uh, mm. proposition back during Bretton Woods too. Do you think that could include some commodity backing of that, whatever that is? Do you think maybe Russia tries to move to commoditize the ruble as they seem to be doing and try to make that, um, make the, a more multipolar financial world? Um, and then with all of that, do you see Bitcoin being potentially something like a bank or, which is a neutral asset that people could um, may, I, I guess what I'm asking is assigning, what do you assign probabilities for these different outcomes? Like a bank or Bitcoin, uh, being a world reserve currency and a multipolar world where everybody's kind of running their own currency for some long period of time. Um, I think the odds of a bank or neutral reserve solution, um, is probably 
as we look at intermediate term, I think it's I think it's well over a fifty percent chance. Mm. Like I think, and and maybe that's because I'm an optimist. Um, because ultimately, the the other side is is horrifying um, in terms of the outcome. Yeah. Um, I mean, Russia is sort of already doing this. It's it's interesting to me to see the people sort of poo poo what. Pozar wrote earlier this year about Bretton Woods three, and it's never going to happen. A commodity bad, you know, commodity based money, right? Russia's doing it, right? Russia's basically back in the ruble with 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 gas. And the second they started uh, the doing it, the chart just you know veed right straight up. Whoop. Yeah, straight yeah. up, straight up. And and you know, so it's it's interesting to me, right? When I see the UAE, right, world's biggest gas exporter, I believe, um, was it? I think I saw Russia tell the uh, Indians to pay for gas in Durham, in UAE Durham, right? Their currency. Russia just showed you, right? There's always been the, hey, all these energy producers, their currencies are pegged to the dollar. And so they can't get away from the dollar because their currency collapsed. True, true. Uh, Russia just showed how to do it. If the UAE says, we're going to depeg from the dollar and you have to pay in Durham for our currency, the Durham's going to skyrocket against the dollar, just like the ruble did. They will have the problem of having to weaken the Durham the same way the, Ru- the Russians right. are now, they actually have people in Russia, companies saying we need to weaken the ruble. We're, it, this is the ruble's too strong. So Russia has sort of opened this Pandora's box um, toward this Bancor solution system. I think the Chinese are completely on board. They have been for a while. The Europeans, I think half are. I think they love having the Americans provide their defense for them, but they also want to decide their own energy policy, and so they've got to decide. You know, sort of within their internal political strife, what they want to be when they grow up. Um, you know, do they want to be energy sovereign or do they want to, you know, get free free defense from the U.S. from the people that are selling them gas, um, which is sort of as ridiculous as it sounds when you say it out loud. Um, and so, I th- I think the odds are in the intermediate term are quite high that we move towards some sort of this bank or solution. And to yeah. be clear. This is really good for America. It's really good for uh, the American middle working class, the American government, American military, all of it. It's really, really good. It's just, it's bad for a narrow stretch of Washington, D.C., kind of in the short run. And that's all Washington, D.C. cares about. Um, and it's, and it's, is the short run. And, and, um, and it's not great for the real value of the bond market, but like this just in. The debt levels are so high and the energy situation that we talked about before is getting so dire that that debt is not going to get paid back in, in real terms or nominal terms. But in, in one way or another, it's going to get haircut. Yeah, it's past the point of no return. Um, yes. I mean, this is to enter our world a little bit on, the, on that theme. Like we have a pension. <laughs> you can laugh. Um, and, uh, honestly, like the, the most, uh, tangible thing we're telling our peers that we love and care for is like, You've got to hedge this pension, man. You have to. Like, um, even in its current uh, setup and where it's likely to go in the future, where I think mandates are going to increase. I mean, there's going to have to be a buyer. Someone's going to have to be mandated to buy this shit, right? And we're going to, it's very likely that these funds are going to be the bag holders. Sure, there could be bailouts, whatever. But um, I agree. It's, it is mathematically past the point of no return. Um, there is at least going to be some way, shape, or form of haircut, and you, you have to be individually hedged against being totally hitched to that cart. I'm sure yeah. you agree. I guess take That's the exactly take right. the stand uh, if you're talking to a firefighter who's uh, bank- completely banking on a pension to be their sustenance in perpetuity. 
I mean, I, I, I think I told you guys when we set this up, my, my father-in-law, my late father-in-law was a Teamster official in Cleveland. And my mother-in-law has just still drawn a penstrom from Teamster Central States, uh, which once upon a time, you go back to the 60s and 70s, like that was, I mean, they friggin' built Vegas, right? Yeah. They were, it was immensely powerful. It was inconceivable that the Central States Pension Fund, uh, I'm sure it was inconceivable. I wasn't there then, but it had to have been inconceivable if you would have gone back to 65, 68, 72 and said, here's what Teamster States, cent- you know, Teamster Central States Fund is going to be sending to its its pensioners in 2022, in 2014, which is we are in rundown mode. This is we are going to run out. And it's and it's, um, you know, my 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 father-in-law's uh, other pension, too, from local, uh, the, the the local that uh, he, he helped uh, manage for for years. Same thing is we're just trying to glide it down. But it's it's something you have to be aware of and be cognizant of and just understand the math is the math, right? Yeah. It's the, the actuarial math is very straightforward. Um, you got a discount rate, you got assets, you've got future liabilities, um, you've got future return assumptions. And so you, you can sort of look at it and go, okay, like I, either it's going to work or it's not. And you can stress test that these actuaries, they, they know it's, 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 and that's a little bit of what's been so frustrating and sort of how we've managed things, um, as Americans, as Europeans, as humans, and some of it's, I think, just human nature, mostly yeah. human nature, right, is none of this stuff is a surprise, right? I mean, you had 75 million boomers born. It stood the reason that 65 later, 65 years later, six, 60 or 75 million boomers would reach age 65 and demand Social Security. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Luke, really quick before we let you go, two questions. Sure. Sure. How sure. would you recommend people protect themselves best in the next decade or so? Um, it, I think energy sounds like would be something you're a proponent of gold, um, maybe a little Bitcoin, any other, any other, anything else in that mix that we didn't, that I didn't just mention? Yeah, I think you need to be, um, I, I go back to what I call a Jacob Fugger allocation. So Jacob Fugger, F-U-G-G-E-R was, uh, said to be the richest man in history as a percent of sort of global economic of the global economy at the time. And he had a quarter of his money in basically cash, a quarter in gold, a quarter in equities, a quarter in real estate, and he rebalanced based on whatever was happening. Um, uh, and I and I think, I don't know if those are the exact things, but I think understanding the combination of the debt and the combination of um, of, of, of the, the, the energy situation um, I think requires you to think in balanced terms. So I think you want to, I think you want for the average investor, you don't need to be buying, you know, volatility ETFs and stuff like that. It's a bad idea. You're just, you're going to lose your ass. You're going to lose the money. Like you need a volatility hedge. That volatility hedge should be a pile of cash um, you know, in a bank below, and it's crazy, below the FDIC insurance number, right? Which I think is 250,000 after, after 08, right? So um, you've got a pile of cash. I think you have, uh, I think you have some physical gold held out of the banking system. Uh, there's different private vaulting areas uh, or, or companies in, in major US cities. Um, I think you own a little bit of Bitcoin for the average person, given the volatility, it doesn't have to be much. It's like one, 2%. It, for the average person, that's probably the right number. Small enough where you're not looking at it up and down every day. You just buy a little, you put it away, you know, um, and, and, and move on. I think you want to within, you know, 
own different real estate vehicles. Like one of my favorite stories, Joe Thomas of the Browns, apparently, and I, if, I, I, I don't know if the story is apocryphal or not, but my, I'm told that he bought a bunch of farmland as he got paid, right, in the NFL. And I told my sons, I said, what a brilliant dude, right? Yeah. Like, you know, you just, it's boring as hell. It, you know, but all he does is clip a friggin' coupon every year that is truly inflation hedged, right? It's mm-hmm. not what the government says inflation is. It's what corn and wheat, and so, right? So I just think thinking in terms of these, that's an energy derivative, right? Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Rental houses, depending on, you know, hey, you know, if you know the neighborhood and you know, um, you know, it, it, so it's this diversification across with, with a hard asset commodity. Uh, inflation bent and you know the pile of cash is your sort of you know your 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 downside volatility hedge um, within that Luke we do this every single episode we manipulate our guests where Josh says he has the last question and then I come in with the last question <laughs> um, but uh, two two quick rapid fire questions at the end what concerns you about Bitcoin if you had to pick one thing like hey this is why I think it could fail or not be as big a deal as a lot of these crazy people on Twitter think and then lastly, someone on Twitter asked us how much you squat. Let's close with those two. <laughs> Let's close with those two questions. I put an engagement post up the other day with 315 on the bar. Nice. Uh, and uh, yeah, I, uh, um, I I did that for five reps. So nice. that's not, Proud that's of you, not Luke. bad for my Proud age. of you. That's pretty that's awesome, man. Bad. Yeah. I felt it the next day to be clear, but I did it. So that's what matters. Back surgery but, uh, back, um, back surgeries in your future, but you got it up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we'll hook you up with Jason uh, Sansoni. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, what concerns me about Bitcoin? I think it is more regulatory, governmental. You know, just the unpredictability. Of that I mean, clearly there are some policymakers. DOD people that get it and understand the value of having a neutral reserve asset for the good of America, the good of American power, the good of the American economy, the good of the American people. There is still, I think, a lot more that see it as the, you know, oh, it's a threat to the dollar and we have to, you know, do whatever we can to handicap it. And I understand it's very difficult to do for all the reasons, but they can make it really, really, um, you know, yes, they can't take it and say, but they can make it really, really hard to use without going to another country or doing something really, um, you know, I don't want to give up my passport. I love America. I'm not going to move somewhere else so that I can use my yeah. Bitcoin. You know, there's things they can do. And that's more where uh, I get concerned. The volatility is what it is. That's just a function of managing position sizing, right? If you're sitting there worrying about what your Bitcoin's doing today, you're too big. Get smaller, right? So that's... Um, that, that that's really it i would say yeah all right give our audience a handoff to you fftt where people can find you and inhale your uh plethora <laughs> of uh pretty incredible ideas oh thank you we're if if you're interested in learning more about our product offerings either institutional or mass market uh it's fftt-llc.com and i've got a pretty active twitter feed at, at luke groman l-u-k-e-g-r-o-m-e-n all one word uh, on twitter luke this was fantastic man we'll be awaiting the invoice yeah <laughs> <laughs> just if my house catches fire please uh, if, if I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll call it even send, all right, the, sounds good. Ring. Sounds good. send the invoice to what bitcoin did um at <laughs> yeah. gmail peter whatever. said he'd cover us he gave us yeah. the old head nod 
<laughs> thanks, Luke. I love it. All right, guys. Thanks for having me on. It was great talking. Take care. Likewise. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is blue collar Bitcoin podcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. Thank <laughs> you.